There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to tonight's podcast from Prague. I'm Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow. Today we're going to talk about Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. Now, this one's been a long time coming. Um, this has relevance to both the Bohemian and the History of Alchemy podcast because Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler kind of did a lot of things in Prague. They may have become famous partially outside of Prague before and after, but in Prague in particular, they were a duo. And this is a fascinating time of history. We have, just to give you some background of what else was going on at the same time, we have like Copernicus around 1543. Uh, we have, this is the time of Shakespeare, Elizabeth I of England, uh, Galileo not much after this. This is the, the same time as Yesenius, who we mentioned in one of the Bohemian podcasts. He's one of the executed noblemen in Prague. And Kepler actually went to Prague with Yesenius, when Yesenius uh, ended his visit at Brahe in Benatki, so like it's uh, Yesenius is is he was a professor of medicine and a very important kind of Protestant rebel uh, that led up to the, the Thirty Years' War. This is a great time in Prague, but also a great time within Europe right before the Thirty Years' War. And then, of course, as it seems like we mention in every episode, this is the time of Sendivogius, the famous alchemist, and none other than uh, Rudolf II, who's the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He's the one that eventually brings them both to Prague, and uh, it's thanks to him that they work together in the first place. You know, one more thing I want to say before we kind of launch into this is that this is a bit of a longer podcast. I had to read a, a couple of books to get all the information I wanted for this podcast. So normally we don't really give you a table of contents, but just so you know what to expect, we're going to talk about Kepler and Tycho's theories, which are very cool, so we're going to go into them, and uh, Kepler's kind of horoscope predictions, Brahe's moose, and his crazy nose. Drunk moose. Drunk moose. Right. Uh, just okay. some, some <laughs> highlights to look forward to, and Kepler's mother's witch trial. So if some parts... Uh, stretch on a little bit long or get a little bit theoretical or, um, you know, if, if we're droning on a little bit about the science, uh, just keep those in mind that, that there's some crazy bits dispersed in between. So What's interesting about this original odd couple of Brahe and Kepler is the fact that the, you would think that the science brought them together in the sense that they had a lot in common. When in, in reality, they, they just didn't um, on, on so many different levels. But I think they were looking for truth. That was that was their concept of truth in mathematics and astronomy and astrology. Kepler had a kind of combination of that. Um, that uh, they they found success in that partnership. And if there was a place and a time that fit well to this dynamic friendship and partnership, it would have been under Rudolf's Prague. 
at, at this at this time and at this location. So uh, things, if I can just say that the stars align correctly, if I can yeah, use that, sure. it really did in this sense. Yeah, in fact, uh, yeah, they almost had nothing in common. But but the one of the things they did have is that they were they had revolutionary ideas, and um, they were challenging the mainstream ideas of the time. And even though they didn't agree with each other all the time, they their their theories combined in great ways. I mean, one would not have been a, as great without the other. So even though they had very little in common, I mean, we'll we'll get into this. But but Brahe was Catholic. Kepler was was Lutheran. Uh, Brahe was. Filthy rich, Kepler barely scraped by. Um, so, yeah, from you know, a noble family, but yes, was basically impoverished. In, in oh many yeah, ways. yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He had some distant nobil, right. noble relatives, but uh, whereas Brahe was, you know, a couple of steps away from the throne. Yeah, well I mean, connected was, guy. Oh yeah, right. So yeah, why don't you let's let's get started? We'll, we'll start with Brahe because he's older. So we'll go in a vague chronological sense. We'll start with Brahe. We'll go to where they both met and uh, the theories they did together, and then we'll finish with some of uh, with basically Kepler because he lived uh, much longer than than Brahe did time wise. So yeah, why don't you uh, give us a rundown on, on you know who was Tycho Brahe? Tycho Brahe, uh, a Dane, a nobleman, um, uh, really had, came from a lot of wealth, well connected, as you said, Travis. You know, really had uh, a focus on on trying to. Uh, find things with the the camp of, of uh, astronomy. Uh, now, at the time, you have to understand that there, there were several different warring camps. The the world of of, a, of a astronomy, uh, apart from astrology, some of these things kind of bled together a little bit at this time. Uh, but for the most part, there were two different camps, pretty much separated by mathematics and mathematic theory, uh, and and uh, what they put their focus on, how the the celestial bodies moved uh, in, during the in the encampment of astronomy. So when you look at Brahe, you see you see that uh, he actually had an observatory at the time, one of the very first buildings ever built uh, and largest in Europe at modern times, uh, to have uh, an, an astronomical observation uh, as a major criteria built into his blueprint and an alchemist lab in the cellar. So we can bring in that alchemy aspect into Brahe, oh, yeah. can't we? Yeah, it'll, it'll come up a couple of times, but um, yeah, you know, it doesn't take much to qualify someone for the History of Alchemy podcast, but he was technically also an alchemist, which is all I need to know. To, to have a mention. So he's in the club. But uh, yeah, well, even, even astrology plays a very important role, and both Kepler and Brahe were astrologers, although mainly possibly just to pay the bills. So they, they both maybe didn't actually believe in horoscopes, but they did write them and read them. We'll actually go into a little bit of detail of uh, Uraniborg, this, uh, the first building built with the observatory or with an observatory in mind, but that thing is crazy. Like every detail of that almost a, a, I mean, it's more than a chateau. It was a castle. And uh, it's just... Well, he, he planned the inner workings insane. with the like, idea of his experiments. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so then he built, it's, he built it around this. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is a huge laboratory, first and foremost, that you just happen to be able to live very comfortably in. And, and yeah, I mean, we'll go into detail of that. But uh, there's, there's some more details you can speak about here. Yeah, because... you know, it, it's, it's kind of sad in some respect in the sense that that here's this extremely intelligent, intelligent pioneer uh, in, in, his, in his discipline. And what many people know of him through quick tour guide books when they come to Prague or just in general is the fact that he lost his nose in a, in a fencing duel. Yeah. And that he had a false pro, – he had a pro, prosthetic nose 
made for him so that he wouldn't stick out and you know uh, in a crowd uh, or make people uh, you know stick to their stomach. You know, when you lose your cartilage of your yeah, nose, it's 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 kind of uh, it looks pretty gruesome. Yeah, it's pretty rough. But you know, he did lose part of his nose in a duel, and and. You have to understand, folks, when, when people were, were dueling for their honor, and in this particular situation, he was dueling with Mandra Parsberg uh, over the legitimacy over a mathematical formula. So you have two basically math mathletes, math mm-hmm. nerds going at it because one said didn't, one didn't equal to the other. What a thing to get yeah, it, I, yeah. in, a, in a duel over. <laughs> I know, exactly. But you know, this it, it led to your honor, so it had to be done. You know, During the Middle Ages, it was really important for people to have these duels to protect their honor. Some actually rented out um, professional duelists because they mm-hmm. weren't very good at the art of dueling. Um, others decided to take it a matter in their own hands, but too many were dying from losing these battles. And of course, these the people that were willing to protect their honor were the ones that you're going to want to use in the battles and the crusades. Well, yeah, one thing I didn't realize, but I, I looked up the, the meaning of these duels and, and the meaning of honor. And one thing I did was totally ignorant of before I before I read this was that honor was almost a physical thing because if someone insulted you it was tied to nobility strictly so sure. the, the peasants did not have honor in fact they sometimes weren't allowed to have swords they weren't allowed to have duels anyways but I did not realize that if someone threatened your honor and you did not back it up then you could actually lose your status you could lose your wealth and nobility because and and this could go either to the king or possibly the pope. I mean, this could go. This could get escalated, and they would say, "Hey, he did not back up his honor. He's not worthy of his honor, and therefore he's not worthy of his title." I didn't know that. See, I thought they were all just kind of stubborn, uppity, you know, European noblemen saying, "Oh, how dare you insult my mother? You know, we're going to fight to the death." No, if they did not do that, they could lose everything. Well, it would, it, it would also affect future uh, generations. As well, right. this oh, stuff yeah. did carry on yeah. to your kids. So you had to do this, even if it meant losing yeah. your life. Now, here's the thing. Dur- during during the, the many crusades, uh, several popes were concerned about losing their best and their brightest warriors due to these you know, frivolous duels. And so they actually uh, called a mandate a law saying that you can't kill anymore. So you have to draw first blood. Your honor is, is rewarded if you draw first blood. And that's the end of the duel. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. This is where the word "epe" comes from, from the epi layer of your skin. So uh, the the modern fencing that we see in the Olympics, one of the three weapons, is called an epe for that one reason. So that you know you draw first blood, this is done. Uh-huh. So but to take yeah. someone's nose, now folks, when you take someone's nose, you mean business, man. You're you're, you're meaning to, to to mutilate somebody for the rest of their lives over a mathematic equation. Uh, Brahe was on the tail, the, the wrong end of the sword in this situation, and he had to live with uh, a false nose for the rest of his life. Now, some of that was, you know, is that really true? Did that really happen? So Brahe, you know, w- was in a, in a situation where he needed to still fit in society with this mutilation that he had to, to get over. Now, at the time, if he was living in India, they were doing skin grafts. Um, you know, it, through the Pottery Guild, they were able to, to make this happen uh, so that things like this would not be so obvious out in public. But he wasn't in India. He was in Europe. So no such luck. Uh, it was said through tradition that his nose apparatus, the, the apparatus or the, the prosthetic, was made of gold, silver, copper, maybe bronze. No one really kind of knew. There's been other portraits done with him where it was uh, obvious 
you know, that it was there. Um, others that you maybe just see a thin line, maybe giving you an idea that maybe that was the statue in Prague. Exactly, you can see a thin line, line. Yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly, and so he might have covered up with maybe a foundation base, you know, a makeup to to make sure that you didn't see uh, the the metal workings of this. But keep in mind, gold is heavy. All right, so be able to stick something to your nose, to your face. It's a fake nose. It hopefully doesn't drop off in the middle of, of doing something. Um, it, oh, you know, it, can you just imagine? imagine bad news. Just <laughs> yeah, bad news altogether, and you lose your credibility. I mean, Sir, people, people I think, think you're an extremely intelligent. Yeah, you can be an extremely intelligent, intelligent uh, math- mathematician, but when your nose falls off during during your lectures, uh, you lose some credibility. Yeah. So, so he needed to keep it on it, and. So we had all these kind of ideas about what what uh, uh, what the nose was made of, but just as a, as an aside, uh, in in June twenty fourth, nineteen oh one, his body was exhumed, and we there was found a thin little layer of, of green uh, around the nose of his skull, um, and so people then theorized that it was mostly probably made of copper, which would make sense. Copper right. is you know still pretty good metal at the time, but a little bit lighter, of course. But in two thousand ten, just recently here in Prague mm-hmm. at the Church of Tien uh, in Old Town Square. Uh, his uh, the, the his body was 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 exhumed again, and it, they analyzed the small bone fragments and declared that it was actually brass. Yeah. Uh, so this was also most likely kept in place with glue. Here's my question to you, Travis. Uh, much like a, a 21st century rap star artist, music artist that might wear gold teeth to give you a sense of. Uh, of of uh, you know how well off they are. You're saying he was he was showing some bling. Is Maybe that... he was showing some some nose bling. You know you you, you never know. Maybe at the, the really <laughs> special occasions, everybody well, knew he lost a nose. Yeah. So maybe it was a situation where he went to a big dinner with Rudolph and he said, "Hey, I'm gonna let it shine." Well, that's right? that's <laughs> the thing is that uh, I think you mentioned that in some portraits you see a string like in a World War One mask, but in many portraits you see nothing at all. You just see him with a regular nose, and I don't know if that was like. The portraitist being polite, or um, if because I, I've read that he had a silver and gold nose. I also read that um, he used a lot of foundation. So actually, maybe you didn't see anything. Um, it's hard to say because the portraits don't all agree with each other. So and we didn't have photography. So and who knows? this is just a little sidebar of 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 just something that he had to live with for the rest of his life. But really, when you look at uh, at the genius of this man, and you look at, at how he manifested his genius, what really comes out to me is not so much the loss of this duel, but so much of, of what we talked about uh, several minutes ago with, with the creationist observatory and, and what he did with his alchemist lab. Yeah. You know, and how, how he really kind of uh, mixed several different disciplines we're talking about, as, astronomy, astrology, mixture of alchemy I, in there. You know what? Let, yeah, let me, let me get into one of these houses um, so we mentioned Araneborg, uh, which he built later, but, but one of the first ones I want to mention is his house on Hven. He had, a, he had an observatory on an island, and, and we'll kind of go into all these, but his house on Hven, which is awesome, it is just very coolly done. It's almost too many details for me to go into here, but I'll give you guys an overview. Um, it did have an alchemist lab. Um, it had, as an example, so, I mean, he built it from the ground up with all kind of details in mind. For instance, you know, he was, he was a social creature. He had, he had very many important guests over. And one example of this is, so he had students, like apprentices that, that would, you know, help him with his star charts and help him with his, his readings and everything. And one thing he did is he had cables going to each of the students' rooms attached to bells, okay, and they all came to, like, the living room where he would entertain his guests, but they were kind of discreetly hidden. 
So what he would do is he would, when the guests weren't paying attention, he would yank on one of these chains, so calling the student, and then when he would presumably hear the student in the hallway, he would whisper his name, be like, Sven, you know? And then, bam, in an instant, that student would knock on the door. And the guests would be like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, it's sorcery, you know? <laughs> and he would, he would, you know, the students would just magically appear, and all the guests' faces would just be astounded. Like, Could, oh, you, could you imagine the students that? Yeah. probably rolling their eyes going, yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, we know all the tricks. Mr. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ring Brahe, the bell, I come. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I mean, he just he had all these crazy kooky things. That's just one of the ones that stuck out to me. So I, I put that in here. But um, in Uraniborg, what we mentioned earlier was, so this is in the middle of the island of, you know, he was a nobleman. So he had his, his peasants and everything that, that did a lot of work for him. In fact, in some stories, he was kind of a tyrant. But um, this was the best observatory at the time. And everything was built in this specific kind of structure. So everything was um, symmetric and geometrical. So it was like a square with circles on the outsides. And then you had kind of satellite observatories. One was like named uh, Sterneborg, which is like, you know, Starberg, basically. And he would have, because they wouldn't fit in the house, because some of his equipment would be like two, three stories tall. So he would have to dig into the ground, and this would be like straight north of the main house or straight west or straight east or whatever, and dig dig into the ground to flee two or three floors, and then have this huge like sextant or some you know astronomical tool. But he had to have this huge um, like compass or sextant or something you know to 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 observe this the stars. And uh, so he'd be at like ground level, and this huge instrument is going way beneath ground, but also looking up in the heavens. You know, it's just to give you an example of the of the scale of these things. And uh, you know, he would kept he would keep um, commissioning more and more tools, and you know, kind of spreading out his his observatory into all these little satellite observatories. And these were all not just massively precise tools but also made of like bronze and gold and with murals on the side murals that would be like two three stories tall because that's how tall the tools were and these really not just precise instruments but absolutely works of art in their own right and uh, we'll get into some of these but just keep in mind that if we talk about him moving from uh, Denmark or, or from his island to Copenhagen or to Germany or to Prague he had most of these in tow so he would have like a caravan of instruments a, a behind po- a him. A posse of, of students and, and, and helpers. And, and you, know, you know, I think and this might be too inside, Travis, and I don't know if, if you've read anything on, on this, but when you talk about his observatory and looking into the stars, what were the lenses like? Because at the time, you know, lens technology, ah. and, and invex lenses and, and He didn't have lenses. Convex, he didn't have any lenses. So this is – How could he do this, this without lenses? This is around the same time as Galileo. Uh, so Kepler got into optics and lenses, but he's – this is a little bit before or, or when it – either before or when it was just too spanking new to get to him. So these were sights as in like sights from a rifle, not – no lenses, no telescopes. Interesting. And he had partially – more precise instruments than later telescopes had. I mean, these could, that's why they were so big, because you had to line up the sights, you know, from, you know, let's say, I don't know, 30 yards, 10 meters, whatever. I mean, a huge one to the other, and then you get these super precise measurements that he would, you know, then make his students write down, and night after night, and he would track Mars. One of his big project, projects was tracking Mars and 
checking the planets. But let's take a break from that. Let's get into some of the funny things. I'll mention one thing, which is he had a dwarf jester named Jep. I'm just going to go with that. Why don't you tell us about the moose? The moose is the best story. You sure you want you want me to tell the go story? Go for it. All right. Go for it. <laughs> All right. If you can, this is the best part. This is the best part. All right. All right. He actually had a tame moose. It was actually really an elk. But we're going to yeah. call him a moose. There's, there, there could be something lost in translation. Yeah. A, a very large animal with a funny nose and sure. some antlers. Let's, Let's go, with, go that. with that. Okay. Um, and he was. It was meant for noblemen in, in the castle, but but died of drinking too much beer, and uh, found his demise after falling down a flight of stairs. So he had a drunk moose, and this is actually a true story. Yeah, th- yeah. This this story gets thrown around a lot. Like this is like, <laughs> oh, you know, clearly the guy with the nose and the moose. But yeah, like someone in Kassel asked for something called a reek. He's like, I know in the north you guys have these deer-like animals called reeks. And and Brahe was like, I don't I don't know what a reek is. I think he just made it up, or you know, it's like just, a snipe. It's just a, a legend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. And he's like, we have reindeer. Do you mean reindeer? And he's like, no, no, no. I have several reindeer. It's too hot for them. They all died. Um, and and Brahe was like, well, I know a guy with a couple of elk. He's like, well, I already have some elk. But if you offered an elk, I wouldn't refuse an elk. So that's basically that's exactly this is a conversation how it went down. at a dinner table. It's yeah, like, this is exactly how it went down. Like I, you know, these noblemen writing letters. And back if and he forth. could drink a lot of pivo, he's well, my he's he's my my new pet. So so Brahe arranged an elk, <laughs> and then he went up some stairs into the house and got into a beer keg, and then on and he drank the whole thing basically, and then on his way down he tripped, fell, and died. You know. So I, you know. So I mean, life expectancy of Brahe's pets really was was very limited. This is probably what the lessons learned here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> Smart guy, but was not good with animal husbandry. Is what you're telling, trying to tell me here? Yeah, put some put some elk gates <laughs> on your stairwells. I, I don't know. Or don't have reindeer in the middle of summer. Yeah, there's things to learn from this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, so okay, it wasn't all just goofy stuff. Actually, a lot of a lot of him is kind of. Goofy. Yeah, we started the show with goofy. Yeah, but now we're kind well, of getting to the so, meat, right? <laughs> There's more goofy coming, but but um, uh, po- he might have possibly named the sextant. So you know this this tool looks kind of like a compass, and um, so that he might have actually named it. Now his his theories are really interesting. We'll get into it a little bit deeper in a second here, but but it's a mix of uh, Ptolemaic. So the tools that he had and why he wasn't satisfied was because for him to read horoscopes or pre- to predict things. Um, he had a mix of Ptolemaic and Copernican tables available to him. So Ptolemaic is the old geocentric model of the universe, and Ptolemaic, uh, sorry, and Copernican was newer. But he, even with the Copernican model, he still noticed that there was huge indiscre- indiscrepancies of where a prediction said a planet would be or a star would be, and where it actually was, because no one had as precise a measurement as he did. So he could instantly tell, well, that's not right either. Okay, so he tried to come up with theories that would make sense of his own readings. Now, there's some interesting things going on because Brahe was a nobleman and noblemen, it was beneath them to actually publish intellectual books. It was not their place in society. So um, it's all fun and games that he can observe stuff. But to actually publish something 
that was that was not okay. So it was like a party trick. You know, he could he could with his other nobility at a you know drinking and and eating feasts and whatnot. What noblemen did, um, it was fine for him to say, "Huh, Ptolemy, he has it all wrong, and Copernicus also. I know what's best. That's fine." But then to actually publish his works, that was not okay. But you know, it was just beneath him. He didn't. You know, it just wasn't his place. But this all changed when the 1572 supernova happened. Now, supernova, um, that was actually, he coined the term, okay? So it's now called SN 1572, and it's in the constellation Cassiopeia. Since antiquity, and we're talking like back the, the Aristotle and Ptolemaic system, you know, the, the world is the center of the universe, okay? And uh, the moon cycle, everything revolves around the earth, and basically... What is closer than the moon can change. It's, it's, you know, you have, I mean, we see it all around us. You have life and death. You see trees growing. You see trees dying. You see uh, people growing, being born and dying. So anything closer than the moon can change, okay? The moon changes, phases. But anything beyond the moon um, was unchangeable. So planets move, but they don't change. And stars are eternal. So... Uh, the word for sky and heaven is often the same word in many, many languages. And um, so the idea is, is that the stars never change. Now, what if you have a supernova? What happens? This only happens like every, I don't know, a couple hundred years, every thousand years. I mean, it's, it's really, really rare. So what do you have if something beyond the moon changes. So everybody at the time, the supernova happened, and everybody's saying, oh, well, it has to be a comet because uh, it has to be closer than the moon. Anything further can't change. It cannot be a no, new star. And uh, Brahe was reading these books and at the same time observing it and was saying, no, it's, you have something called parallax, which is when a comet changes, if, if you're rotating, you can see that it changes in the sky. Okay, So basically, in the, I don't want to get things mixed up here, but in the summer and winter, if you're on opposite ends of the, of the sun's orbit, you can see a parallax in certain things. In stars, we didn't discover this parallax until like the 70s of this century because it's so tiny. Uh, the 20th century? Yeah, because, because of, of last century, I should say, yeah. Um, because the stars are so far away, you don't see the parallax. I mean, it, it looks like they are eternal. But the supernova, if it was closer than the moon, you should be able to see it moving relative to the stars. But it wasn't. It was, it was a star. And uh, so, you know, he figured all this out. And, and um, he finally, the king actually told him, you know what, you should publish what you have because this will be great for Denmark. You know, it, you know we have this star astronomer here. You know, let's, let's publish this. So he published a book. In this book, just to give you a quote, so... Um, he, you know, he presented it as a super wonder. And uh, d to give you a quote here, he said, I doubted no longer in truth. It was the greatest wonder that has ever shown itself in the whole of nature, as in the star being born, since the beginning of the world, or in any case as great as when the sun was stopped by Joshua's prayers. So he recognized that, okay, this is, you know, once in a millennium event, but, and it's wonderful, but this is really what it is. It is a new star. So he coined the term Nova. So the term Nova, new. we get that from Brahe. Um, so yeah, he, he wrote a book, De Stella Nova, like of the new star. 
and now we call it a supernova. And so when you hear nova or supernova, now you know who to thank, all right? He almost didn't publish, like I said, but when he just, you know, he saw how inept all the other descriptions were, he, the, the, you know, he talked it over with the king, and the, and the king uh, said, oh, yeah, you got to publish this. This is, you know, all this other stuff that's going on, that's just quackery. They assume it has to be a comet because Aristotle said it has to be a comet. But it's obviously not what's happening, right? Then he published the book, and then he, later he started even lecturing, which was even a step lower than publishing a book. But, um, you know, the, the king and his peers just felt that, okay, you know, he has enough um, knowledge and intelligence that it would just be wasted if he just shared it in his noble, noble circles. So he lectured. He became a teacher of sorts. Well, let me give you a little side note to this as well. We're talking about uh, this happening in 1572, correct? Mm -hmm. So um, if you can imagine, uh, a little further inland into Europe, there's uh, a young Johannes Kepler, um, a very young kid. His mother knew that he loved astronomy. Mm -hmm. he, he, that, that was his pension that he wanted to, he wanted to, to follow. That was, a, that was what he wanted to do. And because of a motherly love of, of basically trying to uh, get, keep his, his, uh, her son's attention into, into something that he really liked, she took him out to uh, the country to watch this particular supernova, what they thought was a comet at the time in yep. 1572. Yep. So at the same time that, uh, that, you know, this, uh, that um, uh, Brahe was actually making scientific gains with this discovery – a very young Kepler was blossoming into his interest in astronomy right then and there. Yeah, and kind of kind of a neat sort of, if, of connection between the two. Yeah, it's it's funny. This is, of course, I don't believe in astrology, but um, it is very interesting that these two astrologers, like you said earlier, the stars aligned. It, this is truly a big coincidence. So the last. Um, Supernova before this, which wasn't even noted in Europe, Europeans didn't even notice it, basically, was uh, what the Chinese called a guest star, which was in 1006. So basically a thousand years ago almost. And then there was Tycho's in 1572. And then Kepler got his turn in 1604. And then there's been none since. Yeah, amazing. So, yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it really was very rare phenomena. And there was two within you know, basically 32 years of each other. And these two men were, 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 were you know, years. joined together in, in scientific discovery through the latter part of their careers, or at least through Rahe's career, uh, together. So they had that in common with each other in, in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Okay, so let's, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the Tychonic system? Let, let's uh, talk about what he believed in. Tychonic system basically means this, that all planets revolve around the sun, but the sun and the moon revolve around the earth. Yep. So right? the earth is still the Earth the is still the center yeah. of everything. This fits very well into the Catholic or church belief system at the time, that because of our divinity that God created earth, that we have to be the center of the universe. We have to be the center of our solar system, and that's it. Uh, the the idea is that uh, Earth still has a center seat at the at, at galaxy center, <laughs> yeah, and and its own importance. Yet the sun does has has its center as well. And this is all based on the idea that why he was so stuck on this idea was because of that the the parallax uh, idea of uh, there's no stellar parallax, right? So there's a measurement issue that he just said the stars do not move. Well, that, that, yeah, I mean, it all makes sense from their, their standpoint, absolutely because. 
so he had the most precise instrument at the time, and he said, if the Earth is revolving around the sun, like Copernicus said, and many people were already on the Copernican, on board with him, yeah, yeah. Copernicus. I mean, this is like this is already Galileo's time. Mm-hmm. Galileo wasn't famous quite at this moment, but he was rising, and Galileo was a strong Copernican, you know, advocate, obviously. But still, he said, okay, so I have the most precise measurements ever, and I do not see the stars moving. Now, his problem was is that everybody at the time greatly, greatly underestimated how far away the stars were. Right. In the Earth's orbit, if you're at one end of the orbit and then the other, according to how far they thought the stars were away, you should see the stars move. You don't see them move. The Earth simply doesn't move. End of story. Okay? But then he was also smart enough to realize but that, like you said, the planets are clearly not revolving around the Earth. That makes no sense. They're revolving around the sun. Right. So it's, it's yeah. It's he, had, he, had, he had to meld two I together mean, to, to, make, to make this make sense. But it's still in based head. off of observation. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Listen, this, this is a step that had to be made. It had to be made um, before, so we can move for, even further into this. Yeah, and another thing that's interesting is you mentioned religion, and and because a lot of this, so this was like you know Ptolemy and Aristotle. I mean, the the geocentric model goes way back to antiquity, but the Catholics took hold of it, and not just the Catholics, but if you have, um, if you're into astrology, and Kepler and Brahe were, if you change the if you change the model of the solar system, then you're messing with the meaning of astrology also. So there was, it's kind of underrepresented or underestimated, but, but that was important. I, I know yesterday we, we just did a podcast where you mentioned the story, but, but it is about Brahe. So why don't, why don't you uh, say it again? For... Well, this, this story actually gives you an idea about why he left Denmark. <laughs> he, he left pretty much in the middle of the night, and this is for the reason. At the time, you know, you kind of wore different hats. You were, as we said, Brahe actually did the lowest thing he could probably do, which is teach class. Um, he also uh, authored books. Uh, but one of the other hats that you had to wear in society was if you're going to have all this money coming to you from the royal house – Every once in a while, you had to be invited to the king's castle and uh, you know perform some royal duties, which would be performing a horoscope reading. He was actually um, was ushered to to the castle uh, for Prince Christian of Denmark, and uh, he wrote seventy one pages of his horoscope, but uh, of, of this of this concept. But he also knew that uh, if the royal clock was as much off by four minutes um, at the time of the birth then the horoscope reading would be absolutely useless. So this, 71 pages of uh, paperweight. Of, of yeah. paperweight. But 20 pages of that horoscope were actual star charts. So they, he said, okay, here's the most precise things we know about the stars. So based off of these 20 pages, I'll write you another 50 pages of horoscope. But mind you, if your clocks are off four minutes... It means nothing. It's, yeah, it's garbage. Right. So, so you know, at, at, so at the time when Christian became king um, and took over the throne from his father, uh, he did not share the same sort of love for this mysticism that uh, he probably called Brahe's well, science. There was a lot of money going towards Brahe. Right. So. And, you know, when, when you look at the, you have the royal uh, comptroller come to your come to your <laughs> to to your chambers and say, "Hey, uh, king, here's the deal, uh, Brahe. We're spending a lot of a lot of gold talents on this guy." Um, or, you know, we're spending a lot of our treasury to fund this guy to tell us that your horoscopes are, are kind of off and they really don't mean anything. And by the by, um, he's just kind of 
you know, fooling around with these with these crazy yeah. ideas. What exactly is he doing with uh, chopping down our forests yeah. to stoke his alchemical uh, furnaces? And right, know, so th- things didn't go so well after that. At that point, uh, the clash of egos came came in in, in the way, and and Brahe, uh, trying to be this the smarter man uh, in the room, decided that time was up and he needed to get out of Denmark quickly. So he took all his stuff. He took all his his works. He took his students and his 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 posse basically, and he left town um, and uh, started started uh, left the island of Heaven and uh, left Denmark and started his life elsewhere. Yep, started headed south a little bit. Uh, I'll note that it's around this time when he got a first. He received a copy of a book by a young district mathematician named Johannes Kepler. So this is this kind of this is kind of almost. You know, a side, like a footnote. But, uh, yeah, this is the first time we ever heard the name Kepler. And uh, so why don't we actually kind of talk about who Kepler was. But this is when a young Kepler was starting to make a, an appearance in the intellectual world. Uh, you know, he, he's, he was born in southern Germany uh, near Stuttgart. Uh, and he's 25 young, years younger than Brahe. So um, definitely... Uh, Kepler knew of Brahe growing up, especially that was in his, his interest when he mm-hmm. talked about astronomy. Uh, and we are kind of getting an idea that uh, at some point after, after Kepler came into his own, that he made waves enough to catch Brahe's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we, we need to understand at the time that um, if you were growing up, especially uh, in, a, in a Protestant uh, household in, in southern Germany, that you were going to... Um, probably still have religion as part of your educational system. And I believe that that religion basis still had colored some of the ideas that Kepler had, even when it came to the, the sciences. Yeah. So yeah, I'll mention that, so he studied in Tübingen, and he was already noted for being good at horoscopes at that point. Um, he had a professor named Mestlin, and the university officially taught the Ptolemaic system, but Meslin was one of the few of his time that actually thought that Copernicus should be paid attention to um, and kind of, you know, listened to. There's also Cardinal, Cardinal Nicholas uh, of Cusa, who came a century before, and he also had ideas that the Earth was not motionless in the center, but, you know, kind of moving, and Kepler came across his works too. So he definitely had some influence and some ideas of the world possibly moving, which was, you know, a unique viewpoint at the time. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the kind of religion into all this, because Kepler was definitely theologically minded. And just as you mentioned that the church, uh, there were some theological aspects of the earth not moving, and, uh, you know, that the stars were eternal and that kind of thing. Kepler took his idea very similar to ancient Pythagoreans and reinterpreted it for Christianity, okay? So since the sun was the brightest object in creation, it only made sense that it signified the center and should therefore be in the center of the solar system, right? So man is, you know, out, you know, not as bright as God, so we shouldn't be in the center. I mean, this this all made sense to him, or this is how he reinterpreted it. Uh, just a quote is, that he said is that there was nothing I could state that I could also contradict, and this comes over over and over and over. So he could he could always show both sides of the coin. So just like he could he could argue for the Earth being in the center if he was pressed, he could argue for the Sun being in the center. Uh, you know, either way, this was this kind of hurt him politically later on. I mean, he was in a charged environment between Protestants and Catholics. 
Um, you know, he was, a, like you mentioned, a Protestant Lutheran mathematician, but he became uh, the schoolmaster in Graz, which was very Catholic at the time. Um, he, during this mathematical time, he had a reputation for using astronomy to predict crops and wars, which actually came true, because I think if you just, you know, listen to the political uh, goings-on of the time, you could predict these things pretty easily, even without reading the stars, but, you know, so he succeeded. Just to give you an example, he had to compile the calendar for the next year, and he had to give the astrological predictions. One time he predicted, like, things like war, disease, weather, uh, when there would be good times for surgery, when one should anticipate religious or political upheaval, and when the Turks would attack. Now is probably a very good time to mention that Kepler most probably did not believe in horoscopes. So people always, I get that question quite a bit actually, like here and there is, you know, so okay, so they both read horoscopes, but they're also astronomers. So did they actually buy into it? Did they believe it? What, you know, what did they personally believe? He called it feeding the fat heads superstitions. Uh, you know, so it was like the ugly daughter of astronomy was astrology, uh, which made him very different than his contemporaries, okay? You know, that's true, Travis. Um, I think he wanted to distance himself from the concepts of of, of uh, doing horoscopes, but uh, he wasn't completely divulged from uh, or com- completely separated from the idea because he did still pay attention to the stars on his wedding date uh, to, that uh, many people r- kind of wanted to have an idea about what was going what life was going to bring after this union. So he did pay attention to that, and he has also uh, been known to for reading uh, horoscopes and, and the imperial court. And uh, the fact that he had written horoscopes when he was at university, and was ver- he was known for being very good at doing this craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, for an example, in 1595, he predicted a very har- harsh winter, which of course would affect crop growth. Uh, he had predicted the attack from the Turks from the south, and a, and a peasant uprising that came from all this. All this came true. Um, you know, again, you know what? Let me let me tell you something though. It's possible that he kind of. Um, maybe believed in them in some bit, but let me tell you, if I lived in Austria, I could also predict a harsh winter. winter. And if the Turks were on their way, I could also predict... It wouldn't be rocket science. <laughs> I, was it this, reading... was, this was a time between <laughs> Protestants and and Catholics, yeah, I could probably predict a peasant uprising too. Right. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I, he, let's just say it, he it was, was probably very, on, he was so. very astute. Yeah. Uh, and when you say you could read the tea leaves, um, I don't think he necessarily had to read tea leaves for this. He just probably just put his ear to the ground and listen to the news. Yeah, listen to the news. Um, But, you know, he also looked at uh, planetary motion. What was very interesting is the fact that when we talk about that odd couple between Brahe and Kepler, Kepler uh, believed that they, that they traveled, the planetary motions traveled uh, in ellipses, not circles, like Copernicus' mm-hmm. theory. So, right. Yeah. You that know, was revolutionary. That was yeah. revolutionary yeah. thought. Uh, one of the other prophecies that was very interesting that has a connection to our city of Prague is the prophecy of, of Wallenstein. Uh, Wallenstein was a, was a, a big general here in the, during the Thirty Years' War, and um, he was more powerful uh, militarily than any emperor. And you can still see that his connection to Prague by his sprawling palace grounds uh, and the most prime real estate below uh, uh, the castle here at uh, St. Vitus Cathedral. Have you been there? Yes, I have. Yeah. And uh, it's right, right above Lustertown uh, in Prague, and it's, it's very, very impressive. Yeah. Um, so Kepler kind of had an idea about it for seeing his death in a, hor- in a horoscope. Again, 
here's a guy during the Thirty Years' War that's that's leading an army. Uh, does he have a chance to to be killed in battle? Absolutely. Ah, but he predicted it wasn't in battle. He predicted his assassination by the em- one of the emperor's assassins. It was okay. and and I think I was trying to find a source for this, but I think he actually had the date right, which is pretty impressive because Wallenstein could have hidden in any number of castles. So yeah, I, that. Clearly is impressive. Now, well, do you so. think maybe he might have been in on this? Ooh, I don't. I, 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 I mean, don't that, think that might so, be a conspiracy but, theory. Being, yeah. you know, I mean, that, but, uh, that would be interesting. To, that to, that to might find explain that out, a little bit. It? Yeah. Well, you know, for every story you hear like this, that oh man, it's one in a million guess. I wonder how many he got wrong. You know, you never hear so, about the wrong ones. Exactly. It's like, oh, Kepler <laughs> predicted Wallenstein's death, and it was the way he said it on the same day. Okay, but how many times? You know, he had some really interesting theories of his own. Uh, besides, so the ellipse thing that, you know, he predicted um, the planetary motion and he, this gave him a lot of headaches. And okay, so he got that one right. And it's actually right. I mean, we still know that it's true today that they, they kind of, the, the planets don't travel in circles. They travel in kind of, you know, an oval ellipsis, right? But he had other theories that were very strange. Uh, there's there's one called the Mysterios Cosmographicum. So he, he believed, I'm going to put a picture on the website. In fact, I think it's maybe already there and, and uh, both on History of Alchemy and Bohemican. He had a polygonal structure of the solar system, okay? Best described by that picture. But basically, he thought that um, God must have some geometrical plan. It's almost, like, it's almost like a Pythagorean theory of like, you know, geometry being divine in some way. But he noticed, so he wrote on a blackboard one day, the distance between the sun and, and Mercury, that the distance between the sun and, and Venus is twice as long. And then the distance between the moon and that is twice that. And there's, you know, there's some ratio there. And then he noticed that if you take these polyhedrons, then you get, you know, so you, the perfect polyhedrons, right? So you have like a cube and a, uh, you know, four-sided triangle and, um, you know, a, a five-sided, you know, polyhedron. And those, if you put one inside the other, they have the same ratios. So he were now th- that these were the that these polyhedrons were the perfect solids, and this is very related to Pythagorean or Platonic solids. Okay, so there's the same amount. There's like I don't know five of them, five solids, five shapes, and he said, well, there's six planets, and so those five shapes fit in between the spheres of the six planets. Uh, it gets all really kind of weird, but you know, to get to give you an example, so like what I'm talking about is like the the dodecahedron, which is the twelve sided regular solid, fits right over Mars sphere perfectly. Okay, within Earth's sphere is the icosahedron, which is the twenty sided one, and so on. Okay, so you get but the platonic solids. You get there's six planets. There's five perfect solids. It just it just all fit. Too good. Well, this, and, he, this is, and he saw divinity in this, this in some way. There's a, there's a time here when mathematics was said to, to answer not just some things, but everything. And that, that went through uh, the ideas of, of science, that it, theology. In, in some respect, um, you, you could, you could uh, take Bible verses and you could start adding numerology. You know, n- n- not maybe numerology, but it started adding numbers uh, to, yeah. to certain Bible verses yeah, to actually figure things out. formula. So take this, multiply it by this. And this was actually true. We talked about fencing at the very beginning. We talked about losing Brahe's nose uh, doing a fencing duel. That was very popular at the time um, due to Moorish Moorish influence in in Espana. That when you trained in Spain to be a good swordsman, you did it in a circle 
that had all these geographical sort of movements and triangles. And mm-hmm. there'd be no way, no way for anybody to beat you, to, to stab you or to get you because you could parry every, every, yeah. every thrust if you follow these mathematical symbols. It would be perfect. And they were almost like given to you by God. I mean, Right. Like and, divine, they, and they were great yeah, until right. you met somebody from maybe another country that didn't care about this, picked up some dirt, threw it in your face, and stabbed you through the heart. Yeah. They, they didn't care a lick about mathematics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we all kind of know that there's some problems with that, those kind of ideas. But at this time, mathematics could solve everything. Well, yeah. I, I mean, in Kepler's case, he originally wanted to be a theologian. To, uh, to give you, and so he saw God in all of his theories. To give you one more example from that, from the Mysterium Cosmographicum, for instance, that so he thought that he thought that the universe itself was an image of God. Okay, so the sun corresponding to the Father, the stellar sphere, uh, which would be the sun, as in Jesus, and the intervening space, the Holy Spirit, which is very strange, but is you know it's got it's kind of got some Platonic ideas in there. Um, which we talked in other episodes, and this is also—I think I mentioned this—but but just in case, this is also how we could justify saying the sun is in the middle, not the Earth, because the Father is in the middle. So we are mere humanity. Why would we be in the middle when something more brighter, more divine, is in the center? Right. So it's almost like it's almost like a sun god religion again. You know, he's a you know like who are we if there's this bright mass in the center? So he. I mean, he did justify everything theologically, um, but people were paying attention to his theories. In fact, Galileo actually wrote to Kepler, and Kepler replied. Uh, they were, you know, talking about Copernicus, obviously. So they were in the same time period, and I find that fascinating. And then, unlike Brahe, Kepler, you know, in the end, started using using optics and stuff, and we'll talk about that. But uh, give me another example of a of a weird theory that he had that that uh, is kind of interesting. Now, one of the other uh, theories that was uh, is actually amazing is the uh, concept of musical harmony that Kepler had. Uh, you know, keep in mind that he had an idea the planets traveled at different speeds. Of course, he didn't have the idea that we that was later found out about inertia and the slingshot theory around you know around the sun about why things are in an elliptical, not circular yeah, issue. Can I just point out that the idea of inertia existed at the time? So if he would have spoken a little bit longer with Galileo... They could have figured this out before noon. Yep, yep. Right, and, and we would have a, a, concept, a, a much earlier idea of gravity and, and what that, that pull means to, to have inertia and power to move yeah. things around. And so this whole idea of gravity, Kepler called the Holy Spirit force. So he had a conceptual idea of this. It was like again, on the tip of his tongue. I brought mean, it, he brought it back into a religious right. co- concept because to, to, uh, that, that was his wheelhouse. That's what he knew. So he called it the Holy Spirit force. Think of that as the gravity. So it's kind of a neat idea in that sense. Uh, he noticed that the ratios of the distance uh, of the planets um, all and the speed all fit very well together, and that this would actually sound very harmonious uh, if they were all put together in corresponding string lengths. If you can mm-hmm. think of like a giant harp, right? right. How, so yeah. you know that certain string lengths will, will give you a certain type of different vibration uh, and um, a velocity of sound. So the, the interval between Saturn and Jupiter would be a fourth. Jupiter to Mars would be an octave. Uh, Mars to Earth would be a third major, and Venus to Mercury would be a fourth. So that would kind of give you an idea that uh, he was trying to take what he knew mm-hmm. in a hormonal sort of idea 
with with an instrument or string length and tension, uh, and put a spin on it that matched well with his idea of uh, as, uh, astronomy and, and science. Yeah, this this theory jived a, a yeah. bit better with Copernican uh, observations than it did with the polyhedral theory, of course. Yeah, I was going to say that the the ratios fit even better. So I mean, he was he dug these ratio things. But see, but can you get the kind of the excitement that you're seeing here? On- you know, what he wrote did have a, an influence on Pascal and Leibniz, Monge and, and Poncelet. He had, for instance, he, he, he had the, one of his theories or one of, the, one of the things he wrote about was the point of infinity. So if you have a straight line that goes on forever and ever, it will eventually meet having the properties of a huge circle. Okay, and this, these ideas were actually taken by later mathemat- mathematicians and, and uh, you know, formaically proven in some way or other. And, um, yeah, I mean, he did, you know, the the musical harmony, the polygon theory, it sounds kind of kooky, but um, he did, he pointed at gravity without actually describing it or without actually calling it what it is. But uh, he was also the first to publish a description of hexagonal symmetry of snowflakes. Okay, there you go. Um, You know, he did did some some real science in the sense of uh, astronomically, uh, we mentioned Kepler's Nova, which was in 1603. But, okay, to, to give you both sides of the coin here, so he described the second supernova known to Europe, right, in, in 1604. But here's the interesting bit that brings it back to kind of mysticism and a little bit of weird stuff is because at that time, there's something called the a fiery trigon, um, which had an 800-year cycle. So it starts with the birth of Christ, then 800 years later, you get Charlemagne, okay? And then 800 years later, what? Now it's 16-something, so they're expecting something great. And then the supernova happens, and they're like, oh, okay, that's the omen that's of something great to happen. <laughs> it's like the Star of Bethlehem, you know? Something really is cool going to happen. Um, okay, so let's kind of wrap up his, his solo life. I, I got one more story to tell, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on to um, the meeting in Prague finally. But this story is a doozy. So, <laughs> around 1611, Kepler circulated a manuscript of what would eventually be published posthumously as the Somnium, like the dream. Okay, now part of the Somnium was to describe what practicing astronomy would be like from the perspective of, of another planet. Okay, because when you're practicing astronomy, where you are is always critical. You're always describing the stars of where you are, like in you know, longitude, latitude. But now what if you were doing this from, say, the surface of Mars? And he was doing this to show the feasibility of a non-geocentric system, to say that astronomy is just as valid if you're on Mars, you're still revolving around the sun, so what's the difference, okay? But the manuscript, which kind of disappeared for a while after changing several hand, several times, it described a fantastic trip to the moon, and it was part allegory, part autobiography, and part treatise on interplanetary travel, okay? And now this is sometimes because of this. It's sometimes described as the first work of science fiction. In fact, Carl Sagan called it that, and Isaac Asimov uh, both referred to it as the first work of science fiction. And also so, a famous Czech writer here, uh, one of the other father of science fiction, uh, uh, Karl Chapek. Yeah. Um, also, also made a collect when you when you told me this, it rung a bell because he actually made that connection to this as well. Uh-huh. So, yeah, and so uh, very very interesting. It's like the very birth of uh, science fiction novel writing. Now, this is a really tough situation here because 
Uh, now we're we're getting close to the peak of the, uh, the witch trials in in Germany, and it has a relation to this story and Kepler's mother. You have to understand Kepler's mother at the, at this particular situation <laughs> yeah. that fits into the story, so that people kind of get an idea that she might be a witch. Um, years after this story came out, a, a very distorted version of the story had come to life, which instigated that the witch trial against his mother would start because in this story, Travis. What's interesting about this is that the, the mother of the narrator in this story uh, consults a demon to learn the means of space travel to get to from Earth to the moon. Now, I, I'm sorry, from Earth to Mars. Now, what's interesting about this is that this story is supposed to be autobiographical uh, mm-hmm. about Kepler. So already yeah. eyebrows are being raised going, wait a minute, oh, hold on. Are you talking yeah. about your real mother here? Right. And, and she kind of fit the bill. I mean, she, she didn't help herself out. She was antisocial. She was kind of a crotchety old woman. Uh, you know, she was into uh, homeopathical sort of, of herbs and other type of remedies that, that kind of flew in the, in the eyes of the church. Uh-huh. Um, she was rude. She was meddlesome. She got in your business. Uh, so, yeah, she didn't fit well into, into social life in Germany. Um, and, again, this was at the height of the witch trials and the witch burnings yeah. uh, so of the easily, 16, yeah. 1611 and 1630s. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty rough. So when the charges started stacking up, 49 in all, if you can believe that, they included causing pain without touching people, riding a calf to death, muttering <laughs> fatal blessings over newborn babies. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. Uh, things like that. Unnatural deaths of animals, uh, trying to talk to a young woman into becoming a witch, like you mm-hmm. know, incorporating them into maybe a coven. Um, but yet there was one that was true that is still kind of – it's sketchy to hear, but she's, she was heard in a sermon – of a, uh, about of an archaic tradition of making goblets of deceased relatives' skulls, and she asked a grave digger for the for her father's skull, so she can do that, uh, and <laughs> then she would have it inlaid with silver for her son, the famous court mathematician. Here you go, Kepler. This should help things out. Boy, here's you, a you here's your have, grandfather's skull. You don't have such a goblet. <laughs> no. What? Yeah. So it did, all, man. things she did not help herself out during this time. Yeah. So to... into the rescue comes her son. Mm-hmm. All right. Kepler's like, all right, this has gone on too far. She's going to be burned alive if I don't step in here. Uh, she yeah. might. She might have well happen. happened. Yeah, yeah, almost happened. Yeah. So following the, her eventual acquittal, Kepler composed 223 footnotes to the story that he wrote, the science fiction story about traveling from right. Earth to Mars. Yeah. All right, about you know a demon transporting uh, uh, this person there. So he wrote these footnotes to kind of back himself up to say this is not a, a devil-inspired manuscript, by the way. Um, that it's going to be self-explained in an al- allegorical aspects as well as considerable scientific context. So if you can get, if you can uh, have the court please understand that particularly regarding to lunar geography that's hidden in the text, that this is all science. Well, this brings us closer to the time when Kepler and Brahe meet, because keep in mind that Kepler was a Lutheran, and in Graz, where he was the, the, court, the state mathematician, Frederick II, so Frederick II instituted the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and it made life harder and harder for Protestants. Um, long story short, Kepler started looking around for another place for, of employment, and this is not long after Brahe read Kepler's first book. Okay? Meanwhile, Brahe sent his own book to people in Rudolf II's court with the wish to present one to Rudolf in person. So it really, he's, he's kind of his own uh, PR agent in a lot of ways. 
you know, to try to make this happen. Yeah, they, they all sort of are. Yeah, like uh, both of these stories um, seems to be kind of the norm at the time that the, you write a book and then uh, you publish a, a couple and you send them to other, almost like a peer-reviewed journal. Like you send them to other great thinkers and then they either like it or don't like it. And then you can publish their letters in your foreword. So it's like a recommendation from, you know, like if you send one to Galileo and he says, oh, this is great, then, you know, you can build off each other's ideas. So and then the end game is if you can get actually this promotional item, this 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 work read by somebody that was power and money, right. you're in, yeah. right? Yeah. So they all sent books to each other and, you know, and then because when you talk about publishing, you're not publishing to a mass audience, like not, you know, they're probably in Latin and not everyone would even care about it, but... Brahe had his book, and he wanted to meet Rudolf in person. And so Rudolf, you know, also really wanted to meet Brahe. So he sent for an invitation for him to come to Bohemia, including, the, like, the invitation actually had, like, a salary and a land grant and everything to set up shop. So this was, like, finally the real deal. And uh, this is what Brahe was waiting for ever since he left Denmark, more or less. And this is kind of interesting that uh, before he came to Prague, Brahe whipped up some medicines in his alchemi- al- alchemist's lab and and uh, to give to Rudolf as a gift. And he made up some, like, including some for the plague, which actually kind of came in handy later. But, um, you know, whipped up some medicines, uh, prepared a bunch of stuff in his, in his lab, and then went to Prague, first just by himself without his, you know, caravan full of stuff. And Brahe was shown Belvedere by Rudolf, which is also known as the, the Summer, Summer Pal- Palace. The Summer right. Palace, yeah, which is kind of right next to um, the Prague Castle, and it's really neat. Like they they say that it's the most beautiful Renaissance building north of the Rhine. So I mean, the the Belvedere really is a beautiful thing, and it, it was it's really intricate and has like a singing fountain where you can hear music and is and you know covered in Greek mythology and and now because of Brahe actually has a star chart painted on the ceiling. It was built for the emperor's wife, and so a lot of work went into it. It was kind of like a, a romantic gift, but unfortunately, the the wife of the emperor died before the building could be completed. So the emperor actually didn't allow any woman in the building until after his death. Like he just, you know, he was kind of heartbroken by that. But even though as beautiful as it was, it wasn't good enough for Brahe because it has kind of a wraparound porch and patio and all that, but not really great as an observatory. So, but anyways, he was, he was shown this and the, uh, the emperor offered him Binatki, which is a, an, a palace or a castle a little bit further away and was much better, Brahe's needs much better as an observatory. And uh, he's, he also quickly set up a chemical laboratory, which I read as an alchemist lab. So Benatki is the Czech word for Venice, because uh, when it floods, it's surrounded by water. So that's kind of fitting. But now this is interesting. So Brahe is already a very wealthy man. And I found in, in one of my books, I found what his wage was promised to be, which is a thousand shock a year, which equals 2,000 taller. So Taller, which is where dollar comes from, that was originally a Czech currency from okay. Joachim's Tal, which is now called Yachimov, where the where the uranium mines were and other things, but also silver mines. So, um, okay, so two thousand taller, which is twenty six thousand crowns, which we still use Czech crowns today, or sixty thousand kreutzer, 
or <laughs> 360,000 dinars, okay? A Großknecht, which I'm not sure what it is in English. It's some kind of like a squire or a higher-ranked peasant, if you will, made a 10 a year, so 10 shock, I, I assume, and a uh, like a nanny would make one a year. So he made a thousand. So this is absolutely okay. amazing to me. This yeah. is amazing. He made a thousand shock a year compared to what uh, an, an average blue collar type. So person yeah, like a thousand times the average. 10. Yeah, yeah, ten or a hundred times that. Yeah. All right. So so he's rolling money. To give you an idea. You know, this is higher than most barons or counts ever made in Bohemia. And Rudolph decided that this should be also retroactive since the time he left. Since the time that Brahe left his services at the at the uh, King of Denmark. So he's just rolling in dough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, when you're this good in what you do, uh, you're going to get paid for it in, in a lot of respects. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that it's amazing that the money was coming in. And given, given the idea, when Kepler arrived in Prague, so now we got a creative mind in a beautiful city bustling and ripe for these type of learned men to come in and just kind of put their science to the test. Mm-hmm. All right. This is a great cross-section of the perfect time, the perfect place, and here you go, Kepler and Brahe in well, Prague. Well, yeah, I mean, people often think of them as a duo, even though they were only together for like three, four years from like, you know, 1600, but you have, in Prague, you have this great creative mathematical mind together with the astronomer with the most precise charts, right? I mean, that's, that's what makes them so awesome. Like as a as a duo, kinda. So you you had a lot of potential there, but Prague by itself. Uh, we have Jan Jasinski, who we mentioned a couple times, but um, you know, just to kind of give you a really brief story of who he was, because Jan, Jan Jasinski is actually the person that um, brought Kepler into, basically gave him a ride into the city. Um, and Jan Jasinski, or Jan Jasinius, as he's sometimes known as was a Protestant, well, he was a, he was a medical professor, but you know, also a doctor, obviously. And um, he did the first public autopsy because Catholics wouldn't allow it, but Protestants could do this. So he was the, also the emperor's personal physician, and he later led the uprising that eventually led to the Thirty Years' War. So, you know, very interesting characters kind of in town. Jan Jasinski brought Kepler to Benatki and kind of was a translator kind of person to discuss a contract of employment between Kepler and Brahe. So actually, I found it very interesting that, like, Jan Jasinski, like, I've, you know, I've been down to the torture chambers where he was eventually tortured and then killed, and here I see him, you know, I'm reading a book, and he's actually, like, the negotiator between Kepler and and Brahe. The negotiations of their contract, Kepler and Brahe's, um, didn't go very fir- well at first, you know. Brahe invited Kepler in, but then kind of, you know, had different expectations. And but eventually they came to an agreement. I showed this to you, Pete, actually, when we when we wandered around the castle. But when Emperor Rudolf sometimes required Tycho to be at court twice a day, and when they did that, they stayed at the Golden Griffin, which is on Newtown, right by the city wall. There, yeah. remember that yeah. cobblestone street sure. where, yeah, next to the golden pear and the fish with two tails, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's a very small street today, and I'm sure it wasn't any bigger back then, but um, uh, that was his, his residence, right? His residence mm-hmm. for this time. So 
that was just a stone throw away from the from the from the castle and the royal court, so it wouldn't be that far of a walk. Yeah, like it was within sight, basically. Yeah. especially in the winter when the trees aren't but in the two, way. Two can... days, uh, two times a day to come into is well, a lot it's because a lot Rudolph. We've done the Rudolph the Second podcast, and we talked about his superstitions and his weird habits. So mainly, what Tihu actually did was read uh, or give him advice based on his horoscopes. Like that was the main thing. And I think we mentioned this before, and it's it's hard to say how much Kepler and Brahe believed in horoscopes. I know we talked about Kepler before. And it, it's possible that Tycho believed in this a little bit more than Kepler, but uh, it is clear from his writings that he thought this was boring and tedious. So just kind of, you know, the boring part of his job was to read horoscopes. He definitely believed that free will trumped the influence of the planets. And a, a lot of astrologers, even ones that did believe in it, believed this, that... Um, that there might be some influence, but it just helps you know what the stars say and that there's some kind of influence out there, but your free will, you can overcome them. And if you know your horoscope, even more so because you know what to expect. So eh. it's, not, it's not a but, far throw from a lot of religious belief systems, especially in Christianity, Catholic or Protestant. Free will plays a huge part in, in yeah. making decisions because you do have free will. Well. So obviously Tycho believed that predicting battles was ludicrous, right? I mean, there's no way that the stars could say that much. But Rudolf believed in it very strongly, and he was the one paying the bills. So Tycho, you know, yeah, there you go. Sure. Um, now, eventually Kepler lived a few blocks further from the castle, and depending on the source, but but I think um, that's that's now where there's that statue of Brahe and Kepler. Remember that. It's on uh, Pehojolets. It's right by the square. tram stop. Yeah. 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 Um, so if you get off at Pehojolets, kind of the back door of the castle, you'll see a statue of Brahe and Kepler. Uh, that may have been Kepler's house at one point. Now it's just kind of a green little lawn. But um, Brahe mounted uh, some of his instruments on the balcony of the Belvedere, the Summer Palace, and used it as an observatory, which is a great perch on top of the hill near, near, the, near the castle. I mentioned this early in the podcast, too, when we talked about how these folks, you know, Kepler or Brahe did a lot of this stuff with or without optics. And you mentioned that, especially Brahe, being the older one of the two, did not do this stuff with optics. Right. But Kepler it, did. He dabbled in optics, you mm-hmm. know, in lenses and, and used what he knew, which was how the eye works, right? Mm-hmm. So he used the idea of, of a camera obscura to draw the solar eclipse. Kepler, uh, uh, which we all learned in elementary school, yeah, right. So we don't burn our eyeballs right off when we go look at solar eclipse. We build a yeah. a shoe box and we <laughs> you know, put mm-hmm. put the put the, the mirrors in so we so we don't burn our eyes out. But the uh, Kepler discovered how the how the eye works in this in this manner. Uh, before this was thought, the image was caught into a, into liquid in the eye. Some sort of people thought that really how how yeah. it worked. But Kepler realized that it was reflected upside down in the back of the eye through a lens. So when we talk about, you know, where do you really see, we see through the back of our, 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 our brain, not, not through the front. And it's, it's flipped. It's inverted. Right. Um, so he used these theories to describe how a telescope works. And his, fir- and his work became the foundation of the 17th century optics tradition. Mm-hmm. Right? So according to, to Hassner, Kepler was there when, when he died, and it was, uh, was Brahe's dying wish for Kepler to finish his model, his, his model theory, that is. Yeah, yeah because Brahe kept, kept working on the, the you described the, the Tihonian the model, right? So it's still geocentric, but the planets revolving around the Earth, around the sun, and the thing is that that there were some trust issues in the beginning because um, 
especially when in the negotiations of employment and these things, Kepler had to be very careful about the heliocentric, geocentric um, kind of his belief systems because he knew what Brahe believed in. But Kepler was a strong Copernican, like he knew that the sun was in the middle. So he kind of tiptoed around this for a long time. But in the end, Brahe realized that he, if he wanted to see his Tychonian model of the solar system finished and published, he would have to trust Kepler to do it after his death, right? So in the end, he did. And once they got kind of got over that, they worked together. And this is the, the great famous duo that we know of, you know, them... Uh, you know, Tycho having all the data and Kepler being the mastermind b behind all the, like, the formulas and the, the math behind the, the model. Uh, okay, but, but that does bring us to, to Brahe's death. And uh, this is a story that we actually get from Kepler. There's been a lot of speculation over this story over the years, and that's actually part of the reasons why he was exhumed a couple times. But according to Kepler, so just outside the castle, Brahe was invited to a, a banquet. Now, at the time, it was considered rude to rise from the table before the host, right? So, you know, when the host is seating, you stay sit. This one simple rule killed Brahe, according to Kepler. So he ate and drank heavily, but he refused to break etiquette. And apparently, the host had a bladder of steel. So the host never got up. And Tycho really had to go, but he just he refused to break etiquette, right? This sounds like a bad college drinking game. Yeah. So in any case, by the time he got home, you know, he just kind of ran home and he's been holding it for so long that he could no longer urinate. Like he just, he tried, nothing came out. So he tried for days, but eventually some five days later, I mean, he just, you know, <laughs> he was suffering quite a bit. And on his last night, his delirium stopped and his last words were, he looked over at Kepler and said, let me not seem to have lived in vain. Okay. And then he passed away. Um, so he's buried in tin. Uh, I think we mentioned that he was—he's in a—he was placed in a magnificent casket in a procession and brought to Tin Church, which is right off of Old Town Square. Which again, well, you, pictures you can't are, miss it. It is the yeah. the um, uh, uh, basically landmark that everybody sees in every postcard. It's it's a very medieval looking um uh church with the with the two spires and it looks like maybe something you might see uh from from an old fairy tale but it's right there in the middle of uh, old town square yeah uh, there's pictures on your website too on bohemian so A absolutely um yeah no no we already covered the the model that Tycho and Kepler were after which mostly Tycho Kepler was a pretty strict Galileo uh, Copernican but um, so, you know, again, Tycho had his own ideas. And, and you mentioned before that it's just basically based on the fact that the stars don't move. You don't see any parallax. So therefore, the Earth doesn't move and so on. Um, there was another uh, thing that we didn't mention last time was that the Earth can't move since everyone knows that out in space is ether. It's like quintessence. It's there's there's no vacuum. Vacuum is is uh, a vacuum was actually heresy at the time because there cannot be nothing because God is everywhere. Therefore, something must be everywhere, right? So vacuums didn't exist. And since everything's moving through the ether, the world is just too damn big and sluggish to kind of squeeze through the ether. It just wouldn't make sense. Like this was part of their their thought process here. Um, so, anyways, that's you know these are part of the arguments for 
geocentric, like, you know, as in, as in the, the earth is in the middle of the universe and the sun revolves around the earth. That was some of the arguments. But so after Brahe died, Kepler became Rudolf's court mathematician, which is probably, he's probably most famous for that today. Well, not most famous, but he's, he is known as Rudolf's court mathematician. He had full use of Brahe's tools and charts, and he was able to complete the Rudolphine tables and in and with them create better horoscopes but the rudolphine tables are actually something that he's really really famous about famous for because they are simply put the most precise star charts and kind of maps of everything that were ever created to that point and they're actually i mean he had very strict standards and you know brahe worked on them forever years and years, and then Kepler finally finished them at some point. But yet there were still some discoveries yet to be made. And we, we talked about, at the same time, Galileo Galilei in Italy was discovering some of these uh, amazing, earth-shattering um, uh, concepts through, through, through his telescope. Uh, he, at one point, Galileo's news, uh, Galileo's news reached Kepler that Galileo had discovered four moons orbiting around Jupiter. Kepler's response? Surely Jupiter has inhabitants that, you know, that mm-hmm. could enjoy yeah. this because God would not want this to go unseen by just a handful of people, right? Surely, yeah. surely not that would... That, why would, yeah, why yeah. would God create moons if there's exactly. no... Things go on for Kepler, of course. When he left Prague for Linz, um, he moved around quite a bit during the Thirty Years' War, which kind of threw Europe into a, a, a huge uh, quagmire of, of loss and battle uh, and war weariness. So he came back to Prague. He did see Yasinski's head on a pike on the Charles Bridge, which would not be uncommon for uh, enemies of the state to be decapitated and put on a pike and put uh, above right on the, on the tower mm-hmm. on Charles Bridge. Yeah. Not, not, not a good thing to see. So eventually... Uh... Kepler passed away, and on the night he died, there was a meteor shower, which is fitting, I suppose. His epitaph, which he wrote himself, reads, I measured the heavens, now the earth's shadow I measure. Sky bound my mind, earth bound my body rests. Carl Sagan described, I think we mentioned this when he, with the science fiction story, that Carl Sagan actually describes Kepler as the first astrophysicist. Uh, and the last scientific astrologer. So he definitely has a kind of important place in history. Uh, Kepler was actually on an East German stamp. You know, and Travis, in 2009, NASA named Kepler Mission for Kepler's contributions uh, to the field of astronomy and with that Kepler Space Telescope. Uh, And maybe we will actually find that those uh, mystical uh, inhabitants of Jupiter that were looking at those moons, looking at the four moons, maybe they do exist. All right, in New Zealand, uh, um, Forland National Park, there's also a range of mountains named after Kepler, the so-called mm-hmm. Kepler Mountains, and a three-day walking trail known as the Kepler Track to the mountains of the same name. Um, maybe we saw those in Lord of the Rings. Is that possible? Because we're talking Could New be. Zealand. Yeah, so, maybe. So, so maybe every time you, you look at uh, all those great, uh, grandiose scenes on uh, Lord of the Rings on your Blu-ray uh, or your digital download, you see Kepler's Mountain yeah. Range. I, never, I didn't even think I didn't make the connection. Maybe. Yeah, I don't you know, know what mountain range there. <laughs> I mean, kind of interesting. New Zealand's full of mountains, so maybe not, but yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot more that was named after him. Oh, what but, about the moon the, the, uh, near Tycho? Well, the, the thing is that every time, because of the Kepler Space Telescope, if they find another planet or a moon or something, they call it like Kepler 29b. That's one that's Earth-like or, you know, Kepler whatever. Like, I, I'm, like one of my RSS feeds is the NASA Kepler mission, and then every time they find a planet, it's Kepler something. Nice. So actually, he gets a lot of stuff named after him. And it's not just not just Kepler. Brahe also has some things named after him, too. 
Yeah, like uh, the crater Tycho, Tycho well, on the yeah, moon, it's, it's actually, right? You know, it's it's mispronounced. We mispronounce it in, in English as as Tycho. That's what I was thinking. Like yeah. the moon crater is actually right. You know, it, it's same Tycho spelling. Crater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As also, uh, he has a crater on Mars called you know Tycho Brahe, or probably Tycho Brahe. I don't know. I don't know how we how we butcher that one, but. Uh, there's the, the Tycho Brahe Planetarium in Copenhagen, which makes sense. And then there is, it's called Heat 1X Tycho Brahe, is the name of a manned private spacecraft to be launched by Co- uh, Copenhagen subor- Suborbitals, like this, this company. But there's a couple other things like a bar in Zagreb and a you know, ferry operating between Sweden and Denmark. So, you know, I mean, his, his, you'll see his name around too. And we actually have some listener mail this time. By a guy named Kurt, he's he's written in a couple times, and uh, one of his questions was that. Well, actually, well, at first he enjoys the podcast. So let's get that I'll, out. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll read his <laughs> I'll read his email. Actually, he says, "Hey, hey, Travis and Pete, been enjoying your podcast up to date. Can you tell me how or if Copernicus fits into this discussion and his revolution on the cosmos in the 16th century? All right, and then he thanks us both for our hard work." Which is which is mostly me and less air, air quotes air for Pete quote. Coleman. Right <laughs> uh, but no, we, we did we true. did we, we did mention that though. I mean, it, there, there's a lot we talked about the Copernicus theory, uh, the con, the concepts that uh, Kepler really kind of uh, really focused on. So uh, yeah, Kurt, yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of connections with uh, Copernicus here. Yeah, especially uh, the reason we got this mail uh, maybe a month or two ago, but. I saved it for this one because this is, it's really fitting because, you know, when we talk about like Ptolemy or the, the geocentric model, they weren't stupid. They based it off observations. So both Ptolemy and Copernicus' model work. The, the difference is, I mean, what I mean by they work is that when you predict where a planet will be based on both models, it, that prediction will come true. Mars will be where you say it will be. Just the math behind it is very different. It's like the why it works is very, very different. So again, Tycho did not believe in Copernicus and Kepler did. So this this is really that time, the turn of the 17th century, when you see that shift. Um, and Copernicus and, and his theories were huge in all of this. I mean, these were, these were debated all around universities. And Kepler, Kepler's university, officially, they had to teach the Ptolemaic model, like the geocentric model, but all the professors knew better. And all the professors, you know, secretly, quietly would also teach Copernicus. So it was, it was pretty interesting. I mean, one thing I want to point out is, you said this with if Galileo and Kepler would just talk more, because Galileo um, knew what inertia was. Kepler didn't. And so Kepler was pointing at gravity, calling it like the Holy Spirit force, you know? Right. And if they just would have talked between Galileo and Kepler, they would have come up with gravity. Definitely. There would be no you know, need for Newton. Before Newton. Um, so it's... Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so Galileo, Galileo had a lot more proof than Copernicus did. So, but but they were you know they still had Copernicus's model that kind of based off of a hunch and some math. They assumed it was right, and then they were looking for proof. So without Copernicus, you wouldn't have had this search. So you know this is the definition of science that you have a hypothesis. You have two hypotheses. One is the geocentric, one is helocentric, and then you look for evidence. So you look for empiricism. Galileo, he had like, he found, for instance, the phases of Venus, right? Or, which was only possible through optics. So Copernicus didn't have this, but he ended up being right. Again, even the phases of Venus, it could have also proved Tycho right. 
meaning that the Earth doesn't move, but the planets revolve around the Sun. As long as the planets revolve around the Sun, you get phases of Venus. So it's, it's interesting that Tycho could have actually pointed to that and said, no, no, I'm, I'm right too, or I'm, I'm, I'm really right. Kepler uh, just kind of, part of the reason that he went along with it was a theological basis. So he did, he thought that his theological models fit Copernicus more than his theological models would fit some ancient Greek philosopher that, you know, was a pagan and, you know, so it's so kind of interesting. Um, it's it's really the the why and the how that wasn't pondered before in the way it was before Kepler that finally put the nail in the Ptolemaic coffin, if you will. Um, so I, I mean, I mean, Copernicus is all over this. So I mean, it's it's a great question. Just to go back to that Carl Sagan model that that you know he was the last kind of astrologer and the first astronomer, and and this again is without. Copernicus, it's hard to see how this would happen because if you have a different model and you want better horoscopes, you look at the stars to get better readings and which leads to science even if all you're after is horoscope. Yeah, so basically in short, I mean, Copernicus is central to this whole time period because we, even now, we define Brahe and Kepler and even Galileo by comparing them and contrasting them to Copernicus. Copernicus is really the the base model for all these thinkers. I mean, so in, in, in many ways, I mean, I don't want to make him out to a, a bigger genius than he was. I mean, he, he clearly was, was a product of his time. But, you know, we're always, if we talk about Galileo, we talk about Copernicus as well. And if we contrast his idea with, with Tycho, we're contrasting it with Copernicus's model. So it's, sure, I mean, he was central in, in many ways. So uh, great, great question, Kurt, and, and and please keep the emails coming. Um, you know, absolutely, we'll yeah. definitely put them on the podcast. Um, so today, I'll mention the bibliography because we uh, came across a very interesting book, which was by Josef Hasner, which was called Tycho Brahe und J. Kepler in Prague. It was a German book printed in 1873, and it was really just about their meeting in in Prague, and it was written. The reason I thought it was so interesting is because it was written in German, but by a Bohemian German. So there were many uh, kind of terms that I didn't really know before, and just the way that he he took Bohemian money for granted, and, you know, which I've never heard a shock before, or, you know, taller in context. Like, I knew that dollar came from taller, but it was a great read. And then uh, the other one that was a really great help was Kitty Ferguson's Tycho and Kepler, which was a really thick all-inclusive book, which uh, I would recommend if you want to read more about this subject. Um, in fact, one thing that I really loved about that book was the great explanation of the models, all three. There was, a, there was um, good pictures that it would explain why Ptolemy, why Ptolemy's model would predict the the um, where the planets are and and you know where the like this the stars would be and where the moon would be and everything, um, even though it was completely wrong why it would still be correct, why it would still give pr- correct predictions. That was really interesting to read about, um, which we just skimmed over very quickly. And the book's much more in-depth. And another thing that was really cool was reading about Tycho's island on Hven. Like, if you could create, if you had all the money in the world and you were creating an observatory with an alchemist lab in it, that's what you would do. You would model his thing. It was just incredible. Like brass instrument and golden globes with stars in them and 
and, uh, you know, murals and all these huge things. Everything's like symmetrical and, you know, geometric and it's just incredible. And it was an island. I mean, it's just really, really cool yeah. to read about. One thing from this podcast that struck me uh, during the... During was the, the Drunken Moose? Well, well, yeah, I love the Drunken Moose. Who, who would not love the Drunken <laughs> yeah. Moose that fell down the stairs and died? Uh, but no, I, I think that one thing that, that really struck me about Kepler and Brahe in this podcast uh, was uh, the um, uh, Brahe's sort of life in, in, in this time where Brahe was, uh, had this entourage of, of students and, and, oh, yeah. and people mm-hmm. that, that helped him be who he was. And it was it was uh, you can almost see, see the eyes rolling. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they were if they were upset with him, but um, you know he was making so much money and he was so demanding as 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 a person that I think that uh, it would have put anybody to the test. And yeah. I, I think that he had an army of these people that would just do anything he asked them to do. And I kind of wonder, you know, what seeds of of, of discovery or what seeds of of uh, um, of knowledge. Did he impart to these people that were kind of lost to history? What did they do with their knowledge? Who did they talk to? Did it just die with them after he passed away? Yeah, some of his students had theories because he has many, many students, and he would cycle through them so that no anyone could actually claim too much of you his know, knowledge like, set. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, there were some students that did, and they would even falsify some of the some of the the star charts and everything, and then later claim that. It was their idea, not Brahe's. And sometimes I get the impression from reading this that sometimes maybe it was, and just Brahe had much more money to fight it. Like in the, you know, just like you think of. Oh, it's a battle of intellectual property. I was just going to say, yeah. So, you know, if you got better lawyers to <laughs> defend your patent, uh, it's not too different. Uh, but in some case, you clearly had to deal with. Um, intellectual property thieves, if you will, and, you know, students that would run away and publish a book really quickly that ended up being very wrong because they were clearly stealing an idea and just wanted to get it out there first. But he was fighting this all the time. And there was even people that ended up in Rudolf's court before Brahe was that he had to fight and say, no, this was my idea. You're dealing with a charlatan or a fraud. And if you want the truth behind the idea, you got to bring me to Prague. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. Yeah, thanks for listening. I know today was kind of a long one. so um, But yeah. a great ride. Yeah, I think it was a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff. So thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.